Welcome to the Hills Church Sermon Podcast. Located in El Dorado Hills, California, it is our mission to help others find and follow Jesus. We hope this message inspires, encourages, and uplifts you today. Excited to be with everyone today, and I want to start off with an illustration with a story that actually happened to me just this past week, and I think I can really bring some unity in this room in this very moment by saying we can all agree that one of the most miserable things in life is sitting on the runway in an airplane with no end in sight. Can we all agree? It's what I mean. It's one of the most miserable things in all of life because once you board that plane, you just, you want to feel like you're going somewhere. You want to feel like, okay, I'm, I'm on my way. I, I don't want to be sitting on the runway, on the tarmac for very long. It's uncomfortable. It's tight. It's cramped. And, you know, the little air vents over your head, they just, they don't really blow out cold air and it doesn't really work. Now, last weekend, I, I had the joy of preaching for a friend of mine who preached up here several several weeks back, Pastor Ricky Jenkins, and uh, he pastors a church in Palm Desert. And so right after church on Sunday, I, uh, I caught a flight to come home. And I'm on a Southwest flight. I'm right in the middle, because I was one of the later guys to get on the plane. I'm right in between two other big guys, praise God, praise Jesus. And um, it is 118 degrees outside. I'm not kidding, 118 degrees. I've never experienced 118 degree heat before in my life. Now, while I was sitting on the plane, baking inside, literally getting cooked from the inside out, I'm just thinking, Lord, I, I hope we are quick to get off this runway. I can't imagine what the temperature is on the runway. In fact, I thought, maybe I'll just Google it. And I asked Google, if it's 120 degrees outside, 118 degrees outside, how hot is the pavement? How hot is the street? And it said, on average, in places like Phoenix, Phoenix Las Vegas, or Palm Desert, the pavement is 145 degrees. 145 degrees. And so we're sitting there, we begin to, to taxi out, we get to the, the end of the runway, and then we get that dreaded call. It's already so hot inside that airplane. And the pilot gets on and says, I'm so sorry, folks, but um, you know we've had a little bit of an issue. Shouldn't take too long. Our ground, tr- our ground crew is coming back. We've got a taxi back off the runway towards the gate. They've just got to check three things, confirm a few things. We should be off and in the air in 10 to 15 minutes. I'm not kidding you. I'm not, look, I, I don't think I've ever had a panic attack in my life. But in that moment, in that cramped space, as the temperature continued to climb, knowing it was 145 degrees outside and knowing those little AC things just don't work until you get up in the air, I, I mean, my heart started to beat a little bit. I, I don't really struggle with claustrophobia, but I thought maybe I'm, 
I'm experiencing what claustrophobia is. I know some of you, your palms are sweating right now. You're breathing heavy. <laughs> Sorry for that. You get the picture. And as the, the temperature inside the airplane began to climb, and I mean, everyone's getting uncomfortable. It's, it feels like it's getting borderline dangerous. It's getting so hot. It's hard to breathe. And the stewardess are, are going, uh, the flight attendants are going up and down the aisles, passing out water, saying, it'll just be a minute longer. It'll just be a minute longer. 15 minutes felt like an hour. And finally, I'm thinking, okay, either they've got to take us back to the gate and deplane us. It is so hot in here. Or, dear Lord, let it get fixed so we can take off and get above 10,000 feet and feel that cool air blowing on us instead of the, you know, the heaters or whatever it is at that moment. And by the grace of God, probably was only 14 or 15 minutes. I've never been so hot in my life. We finally get to the runway. They get whatever it was fixed and we take off. And we hit 10,000 feet. We get above the mountains. We get up into the cooler air of the skies. The plane begins to cool down. My heart rate slows down. And man, it was one of the most stressful occasions of my life. I thought, you know, if I ever imagined myself dying in an airplane, it was always because the airplane crashed, not because it got so hot on the runway, I died of heat stroke or something. Bottom line is this, and here's why I share that story. I think all of us can relate in our own lives to a situation, a circumstance, to something where we realized, I don't have any control over this situation. I need to get out of this situation. I can't seem to get out of this situation. I am literally stuck in this situation and you're completely dependent on the pilot or somebody else to do something in order to get you out of the current situation that you're in. I'll say it like this. You need a deliverance. You need an exodus. You need to get out of there. Friends, for the next several weeks, as I've been praying about what we're going to hit on as we head into the fall, I really felt like it was important for us to do a series as a church family on the vision of Hills Church. And I came up with a real creative title for this series. I'm just going to call it Vision Series. From the promise to the future. And as I was praying about this, you know, we've been in Exodus. We were in Exodus for a long time. I'm sorry, in Genesis for a long time, studying through the book of Genesis. And in my own reading devotions, I began to read through the book of Exodus, which is the second book of the Bible. And it's the story of how God brought his people out of bondage and slavery in Egypt, how he delivered them, and how eventually he brought them all the way to the promised land. And what struck me was this, it's a story, the story of the Exodus is actually the backdrop of the entire New Testament. The story of the Exodus is actually the clearest picture in the Old Testament of what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. When Jesus died on the cross and then rose from the dead, which is what we celebrate on Easter... That right there is our moment, our exodus, our deliverance, our freedom from sin and death. It's the greater exodus. Jesus is the greater Moses. 
And the most amazing thing is this, as you read the story of the Exodus through that lens of, man, what happened here with the people of God in the Old Testament? What happened here with the people of God in the Old Testament is a picture of who we're called to be as the church. It's a picture of what God has done for us, and it's a picture of our ultimate identity, our ultimate, our ultimate meaning, our ultimate purpose. And maybe you've been a part of Hills Church for a while. Maybe you've been around church most of your life. But maybe you've never really stepped back and asked yourself the question, what is the point of church? What does it mean to actually be a part of the body of Christ? What does it mean to be a unified people that have a mission that we are fulfilling and going after together? What does it mean for us to live inside the call of God for our lives? The word exodus means departure. It means to exit. It's a story of how God delivered, how he exited, how he brought the people out from bondage into freedom, to live in the freedom that God had planned for them so that, why? So that they could worship him. And friends, I want to propose to you as a church over the next few weeks, we're going to hit on some of our values, some of our mission statements, some of what it means to be a part of this church, what it means to be somebody that engages in the life of the church and helps build the church, somebody who's not just an attender on Sunday mornings, but is a, is a vital member of the body of Christ, living out the purpose of God for their lives in the community called the church. And friends, my, my heart for this is that you would have clarity because this amazing story of the Exodus, it really is defined by this. And this is why we exist as a church. This is the big idea for all of us as Christians. This is what it's about. Exodus 9:16. For this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name, this is God speaking, so that God's name, the name of Jesus, may be proclaimed in all the earth. So that the name of God would be known in all the earth, in El Dorado Hills, along the 50 corridor, and beyond, so that the name of God can be known in all the earth. That's why you exist. You were made for worship. You were designed by God to worship. You're going to worship something. All of us are going to worship something. We can't help ourselves. It's how we are wired. We're wired to love. We are wired to adore. We are wired to celebrate. We're wired to serve some purpose in this life. And what God is saying through the book of Exodus and what God is saying to us through his word and to the church collectively, he's saying this. If you don't worship me first, if you don't align your life around loving God and loving others, around lifting up Jesus as the center point of your life, then you will end up prioritizing other things in your life 
They may not be bad things, but you'll make those things ultimate things. You'll make your life revolve around those things. And those things at the end of the day will begin to replace God's spot in your heart. And whatever you place into the priority, into the centrality of your life as the highest thing will become an idol that actually controls you. It will become your master, whether you realize it or not. You will serve that thing, that person, whatever that may be. Could be your career, it could be money, it could be a relationship, it could be your reputation. Anything can become an idol. We are really good. We are really good at worshiping stuff, things. The Georgia Bulldogs, I'm just confessing to you all now. Friends, worship is about who you serve. We're called in this life to to lay down our lives as a living sacrifice to God. This is our spiritual act of worship. It's about what we do with our time, our talent, and our treasure. You've heard me say that a hundred times. I'll say it again. Worship is about what we do with all of our lives, our time, our talent, and our treasure. And God's word says, I have called you, I've raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be be proclaimed in all the earth. And the refrain over and over again, we'll see this throughout the book of Exodus. God sends Moses to Pharaoh and he tells Moses to tell Pharaoh, he says, tell him to let my people go that they may worship me. Tell him to let my people go, that they may serve me, that they may worship me. They are my people. They're designed to be a witness to the world of who I am. If you think about the story of Genesis and how Genesis concluded, it was amazing because there was a man named Joseph. Can y'all remember back to Joseph? Feels like forever ago. Man named Joseph, and God gave Joseph favor, and Joseph was an Israelite, but God raised him up to be the right hand of Pharaoh in Egypt. This was 400 years prior to the book of Exodus. God gave Joseph favor, and through Joseph, God saved the whole world. And Pharaoh liked Joseph a lot because Joseph was smart. He had good ideas. He was a good leader. And Joseph's family, the rest of the the brothers who then became the leaders of the 12 tribes of Israel, they all came and Pharaoh said, I will give you the land of Goshen and Egypt and I will protect you and provide for you. So in the beginning, Egypt was a great spot. It was a place of provision and protection for the people of God. But the very beginning of the book of Exodus, it says, you know, Joseph had long since been dead and a new Pharaoh rose to power who did not remember Joseph. And he looked over there at Goshen and he thought, wow, the Hebrews, the Israelites, there's a lot of them now. Over the past 400 years, they, they grew from a family of maybe 70 people to a nation of 1.2 million people. If we're not careful, one day they might side with our enemies and destroy us. We're the most powerful nation in the world. Egypt, that's what Pharaoh is thinking. We're the most powerful nation in the world, but they're pretty powerful now. 
We better make them our slaves. We better oppress them. We better give them some work to do. Show them who's boss so that they don't rise up and destroy us one day. And so the Egyptians under this new Pharaoh, they enslaved the Israelites. And the Israelites were oppressed. And the the beginning of the book of Exodus, it begins with God hearing the cry of his people. So the place that started as a place of protection and provision, which was Egypt, was now a place of oppression and slavery and bondage. And God raises up Moses. We're not going to go into the details of that story. It's an amazing story of how that happened. He appears to Moses. And if you grew up in church, you might remember this. Do you remember how God appeared to Moses? Anyone? Burning bush. That's right. So Joseph, I'm sorry, Moses is out in the wilderness. He's tending the flocks and God has decided that this this man Moses is going to be the deliverer for his people. That this this man, this single man in the wilderness is going to be raised up, chosen by God to go to the most powerful king on the planet at the time, the king of Egypt. And he's going to tell him, let my people go. On behalf of God, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go. I I will read it to you. Exodus 3 verse 7 says this. So God called to Moses from the bush. He said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, don't come any closer. Take off your sandals from your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I've surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I've come down. I've come down. I'm the God in your midst to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Need you all to memorize that before the end of service. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me and I've also seen the oppression with which they are oppressed. Come, Moses, I'm sending you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. And I love Moses' response. It's so honest, it's so real. He goes, what? Doesn't actually say what, he just says, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? God, this is not going to work. This is a bad plan. Pharaoh is not going to listen to me. You read into the backstory of Moses. He was actually raised by one of Pharaoh's daughters, but to come back in to the nation and say, uh, Pharaoh, I need you to release your entire workforce. The entire foundation of um, how you are building these massive cities and temples And I need you just to let them go so they can worship God. One of the commentators said, and I I love this, the commentator said it like this, to someone as powerful as the king of Egypt, 
Moses making a request in the name of the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, would look ridiculous. What God would choose to be identified with a nation of slaves and then also presume to make a request from the king of the nation that has enslaved them? In the ancient world, the power or the might of the nation was often tied to the gods that they worshipped. So everybody would have assumed that the gods of Egypt are the most powerful gods in the world because the Egyptians are the strongest nation in the world. And now this shepherd shows up and says, hey, I'm here on behalf of the God of the Hebrews. You're slaves, and I need you to listen to me. I need you to let them go so that they can worship their God, the God of the Hebrews. This would have looked so insane. The odds were astronomically against the Hebrews. There is no way that Pharaoh is going to listen to Moses or that he would just say, fine, go ahead. No way. He's not threatened by them. The only thing he's threatened by or worried about is losing his workforce. And so God is setting the stage here and he's, he's stacking the deck against all human odds. Don't miss this. God is deliberately stacking the, the deck against anybody presuming that if the Israelites are eventually set free, that if the Hebrews go free and they actually make it to the promised land, there's no possible way it could have been done on their own. Their God, their deity, the one that they worship would have to be involved. Friends, the, the book of Exodus, the story of Exodus this story defines who God is by what he has done. You see, God's desire is the whole world would know him. The whole world would worship him first and foremost in their lives. And so he wants to make a statement by how he brings his people out of bondage and oppression. Through these mighty signs and wonders, he wants to make a statement to the whole world that he is the one true God that all the other gods, they are non-gods. They don't exist. Don't waste your time worshiping them. Worship me. I'm the God of all creation. This story, it defines who God is by what he does for the Israelites, and it defines who we are and who we're meant to be based on what we worship. This defines our lives as well. We're meant to be a people that point the world to God, to Jesus. That is our primary calling. And until we are aligned with that, we will be in bondage in some level or another. As the story goes on, exactly what Moses was worried about happens. He shows up to Pharaoh. Pharaoh says, no. Not surprisingly at all. No, you all can't leave. What are you talking about? In fact, I'm going to make it worse for you while you're here. Just to prove to you, I'm the boss. I don't care who your God is, who you say your God is. I'm not letting you go. Moses has another quarrel with God. He comes up with a lot of excuses to God's plan. So the first one is, uh, God, this isn't going to work because I'm just a shepherd. 
and Pharaoh's not going to listen to me. Uh, secondly, you know, I, uh, I was kind of kicked out of Egypt by my own people. <laughs> they don't like me very, very much right now. So what am I going to say to them? How are they going to know that, you know, I actually encountered you in this, this burning bush and you spoke to me and now I'm meant to lead them to freedom? Okay, God, help me out here. What, when they ask me, what's your name? What, what am I going to say to them? What should I tell them when they say to me, okay, what's the name of this God who sent you to us? And I love this. This is so powerful. In verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said this to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, Yahweh. Up until this moment, God has been known as El Shaddai, God Almighty, the powerful one, the mighty one, the creator of all existence. And now God is introducing a new name for himself. He's introducing himself, let them know it's me, the Lord, Yahweh. Yahweh, friends, is used more of God in the Old Testament, over three times more than any other name of God in the Old Testament. It's the personal name of God. He said, I want you to address me personally because I want you to know that I'm personally gonna be with you. I'm personally gonna deliver you. All the promises that I made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob about bringing you to the promised land, about setting you free, about bringing you into your own place where you can worship me freely, I'm now going to make good on those promises. So call me Yahweh, call me the Lord, call me by the name through which I am going to deliver you. Oh, and by the way, I am that I am. I thought about that a lot. I was like, what does that, all right, what does that mean? That God says to Moses when he goes, who are you? He goes, I am. It's almost not even helpful what do you mean you are? He's like, yes, I am. And here's the point, Moses. All the other gods, they are not. I'm the one who is. I actually exist. And I'm going to prove it to the world by taking the weakest nation out of the strongest nation and doing signs and wonders so that the whole world would know and that they would quit worshiping the gods that are not. He says to Moses, I am that I am. I am the ground of all being. I am the beginning of existence. I am existence. Your life depends on me. I don't depend on anyone. I am the uncreated God. I'm personally involved in your life and your deliverance, but I am that I am. My being is self-existence. I, I, I am before time. I am from eternity past. In me, all things hold together. Moses, you, everyone, all the people, you're dependent on me. You only are, you only exist because I am. I'm the sustainer. I'm the one who gives you breath. I'm the one that keeps your heart beating. I'm the one that put the sun in the sky. I'm the one that put oxygen and atmosphere so that you can breathe and have life. I'm the one who made you. I am that I am. And the rest of the world, they don't know me. They don't know that I am. 
And the whole purpose of you, Israel, the whole purpose of you, Hills Church, is to let them know that I am. And that all the other things that they're worshiping and following and serving, those things are not. They're not the ultimate things that they were designed for. I am that I am has sent me to you. He doesn't name himself. He doesn't say, I'm the sun god, Ra. I'm the river god, whatever. I'm, I'm the what. He doesn't name himself. He just goes, I am. I mean, that is, if you look through all the historical accounts of, accounts of God and deities from ancient civilizations, this is the most unique, outlandish idea. All humans across the board, they associated gods or the deities of the skies with something that they could see on earth. Not as the ground of all being, the source of all existence, the one true God that all life is dependent on. This is an earth-shattering idea. And then he says, tell them I'm Yahweh. Give them a name by which to address me personally because I'm about to personally deliver them from Egypt. Friends, the call of the church, our calling, is to help people see who the I am is. Friends, in John 8, there's this powerful moment where Jesus is arguing with the Pharisees and he's talking about Abraham and Moses and Isaac and Jacob and one of the Pharisees, they ask him, are you greater than Moses? How, what do you mean? How did you know Abraham? You're talking about Abraham as though you've actually talked to him. He's been dead for thousands of years. What do you, who, who do you think you are? And Jesus responds, think about this. He goes, before Abraham was, I am. Pharisees could be like, that's bad grammar, Jesus. Doesn't make any sense, but that's not what they did. Immediately after Jesus said that, you know what they did? They picked up rocks to kill him because they knew what he was saying. He was blaspheming. He was claiming to be God. He said, I am the I am. The I am is here, and his name is not just Yahweh. His name is Jesus. Before Abraham was, I am, and I'm here to set you free. I'm here as, as the deliverer to bring a greater exodus, not out of bondage to, to, and to slavery in Egypt, but out of bondage to sin and death and brokenness so that you can have new life. Friends, I want you to see this. This is so important. I want to move through some of these verses. I've already talked through these, read these. But I, I want to look at this because we're, we're going to be working with this as, as the cycle that we see in the book of Exodus. And I want you to feel the weight of this, right? So the beginning of this book, it begins in the land of Egypt. And Egypt has, has transitioned from this place of safety and provision to a place of Oppression. It's a, a place of bondage. But above all, 
it's a place where God's people who are meant to worship God, they can't worship God because they're serving Pharaoh. They're making bricks for Pharaoh. So Egypt represents a a place where their purpose of worship doesn't exist. And so God sends Moses, and there's a series of 10 plagues or 10 judgments, and he sends Moses to Pharaoh. And oftentimes, as you read these plagues in Egypt through the story of the Exodus, you can think, man, these are harsh. Man, God is intense. This is heavy stuff. But as you read, you realize throughout the entire thing, there's a refrain that happens. God says over and over again, the reason all this is happening is so that all would know that I am the Lord. I'm I'm doing this so the Egyptians would know that I am the Lord. So they would quit worshiping their non-gods, that they would worship the I am. I'm doing this not, not just so my people are free to worship me, but so that the whole world will proclaim my name and know me and they will stop wandering in darkness. And through the early plagues, you know, the the local magicians are able to mimic or conjure up some of the things that God did. So the first plague was he turned the Nile River to blood and some Egyptians came and they turned a little bit of water to blood and it doesn't give much details. Maybe it was a magic trick, who knows? And then God sends a, a plague of frogs. Each of these plagues is specifically designed to show God's sovereignty over one of the gods of Egypt. Frogs actually represented one of the deities of Egypt. I have no idea why they worship frogs. I didn't do enough research this week on that one. But God sent a plague of frogs. Imagine how awful that would be. And the funniest thing was, Pharaoh's magicians, they show up and they're like, look, Pharaoh, we can make frogs too. And they do. And I imagine Pharaoh being like, my problem is not you making more frogs. My problem is I need you to get rid of the frogs. Can you delete the frogs? We don't need any more frogs around here. And they couldn't do it. Moses stretched out his staff and the dust became gnats and flies. And even the magicians, this is such a powerful moment. I, I want to read it because they said it to Pharaoh. They came to Pharaoh and they said to Pharaoh, and this is chapter eight, verse 19. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. This is the finger of God, but Pharaoh, Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. And then there's a plague of flies. So there's gnats and then flies. Now the people of Egypt are saying, Pharaoh, let these people go. We are no match for their God. Even the magicians, the advisors in Pharaoh's court are saying, this is the finger of the God who is. And all of our non-gods who are not, we, we can't deal with the God who is. Everyone begins to see that the God of the Hebrews is the one true God, the creator of heaven and earth. And throughout the entire saga, throughout the whole series, and this struck me, I never saw this before. Before God sent the the plague of hail, 
Before he sent the hail, he sent a warning through Moses and Aaron to all the Egyptians. And he said, everyone, go into safety. He says this, verse 19, chapter 9. Therefore, now, go get your livestock and all you have in the field. Bring them into shelter. For every man and beast that is in the field and is not brought home will die when the hail falls on them. And then it says this, whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh and the people of Egypt hurried all their livestock and all of their servants into the houses. But those who would not listen to the word of the Lord perished in the fields. There's a point now where even the Egyptians are like, we need to listen to these guys. God's actually not trying to kill us. He's trying to save us. He's giving us chances to find safety. He's giving us chances to let them go, to free these people. We are no match for this God. We've never seen a God like this before. Yes, we have horses and chariots. We have armies and military, but we don't have a God like this on our side. We are no match for this God. And it builds and it builds and it builds to this moment where God warns Pharaoh one last time. He says, Pharaoh, this doesn't have to happen. Just let him go. I've given you so many signs that I am real, that I am God, that they are called to worship me, that they are called to be the doorway of salvation to the whole world. Pharaoh, they can't stay as your slaves serving you. They need to serve and worship me so that all the world can know I am God. Pharaoh, this is really important. Let my people go. Let them go. Let them go. Pharaoh won't listen. And then it gets down to this moment where God pulls Moses and Aaron aside and he says, guys, I need you to tell all the Israelites, all the Hebrews, to sacrifice a lamb, a firstborn lamb. And I need you to get your bags packed. I need you to to prepare yourselves and you're going to sacrifice this lamb. You're going to make unleavened bread, which means you're not going to leaven the bread, which causes the bread to rise. We don't have time for that. You're going to eat thin unleavened bread, which is why we have communion crackers. Because you're going to eat this meal in haste. You're going to eat the sacrifice of this lamb and you're going to take the blood from this lamb and you're going to put it over the doorpost of your homes because I'm, I'm coming to the land of Egypt. I'm coming to set you free. And after, after this one, Pharaoh's going to let you go. Because I'm coming to strike the firstborn of the land of Egypt, of the land of all those who do not have the blood of the lamb on their doorposts, on the lintels of their doorposts, who don't have the sign of salvation. And then he says, as he's giving them instructions for the Passover meal, he says this. This will be the beginning of all your months. You're going to measure time by this. Chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. This is a new beginning. You're going to measure time by this moment. Friends, is it not amazing that we now measure time 
by the death and resurrection of Jesus, B.C. and A.D. God says here in chapter 12, this will be the beginning of months for you. He gives him instructions of what to do, to eat this meal dressed and ready to leave in haste. And then he says this, when I bring you out after this final judgment, when I bring you out to the land that I promised you, in verse 25, he says this, when I bring you to the land I will give you, and you, and you celebrate this feast hundreds of years from now, when your children say to you, why do we do this service? You shall say, it's the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel. He saved us. This is how God brought us out. This is how he saved us. And we know how the story goes, right? After the Passover, the Pharaoh says, go, leave. He's heartbroken, obviously. He realizes now I should have listened. I should have obeyed. God gave me so many chances to let his people go. And now he says, be gone. But as he's done multiple times, he changes his mind as the people approach the Red Sea. And we see, again, the deliverance of God when Moses stretches his staff over the sea, the waters part, and the people of Israel walk through on dry land. And friends, in that moment, and I'm bringing it home with this, in that moment, all of us would have assumed it's over. We're free. We made it. We're out of oppression and bondage and slavery and God saved our lives against an army that we could never defend against and he brought us out with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm through his signs and wonders and now, now, now we're gonna be in the promised land. We're only a few weeks walk away from the promised land. But no, there's this gap between the promised land and the deliverance. There's this gap between salvation and eternal life and the fullness of what God has promised. And it's called the wilderness. And friends, I'm here to tell you, the wilderness is your life and mine. It's not just a season that we go through, friends. It's our existence in this earth. It's symbolic of our existence. The wilderness is where we learn to worship. He says over and over again, let them go into the wilderness so they would worship me. The wilderness is where we work it out. The wilderness is where we confront our lack of trust in God, our fear, our lack of faith, all the things in our life that God says, look, you're going to be a witness to the world that I am God. When the world sees you eventually arrive in the promised land, they're going to know there's no way those slaves could have conquered Egypt, made it through the wilderness, and arrived in the promised land unless their God was the I am, unless their God was God. And so, friends, your journey, my journey, how do we be the church? What does it look like for us to live here, this life on earth, before we arrived in the prom before we arrive in the promised land of eternity, of heaven, when all the tears are wiped away and all the all death is gone and sorrow is gone? What does it look like to live life here? Looks like this. By the grace of God, daily facing your fears and your anxiety. Facing down your lack of faith in Jesus. Facing all the areas in your life where you don't honor God and live your life for him. Facing your own greed. 
facing your lack of love for other people, facing your shame, facing your insecurity, facing your lack of identity or our identity issues where we try to put our identity in other things. It's where we face our lust, our anger. The, the wilderness is where we get honest with who we actually are. We learn to surrender, obey, and trust God as our creator. And friends, it's a journey. It's a process. It's in the wilderness that the Israelites realized, where are we going to get water? And God says, I'll provide it for you. Where are we going to get food? Gosh, I wish we were back in Egypt where at least we had food. God, did you bring us out here to die? They have moments where they wish they were back there. And over and over, God says, I'll provide manna, bread from heaven. I will provide water from the rock for you. I will be your provider. And Jesus in the New Testament, what does he call himself? He says, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of heaven. I am the water of life. Whoever drinks from me will never thirst again. Friends, the wilderness is where we learn to treasure Jesus, where we learn to worship him with our whole lives, where we enter into this process under the grace of God, after he set us free and forgiven us and cleansed us from our sins. This is where we learn what a life surrendered to Jesus looks like. And we see the joy of God's provision. We see the joy of God's faithfulness. We see God bringing us where he wants us to go. And yes, there will be seasons of victory and we will experience taste of the promised land. And yes, there will always be parts of our heart that are stuck in Egypt. There will always be parts of our heart that are wrestling with sin and wrestling with brokenness and we'll have to trust the grace of God and we'll have to enter into different seasons as we face down our struggles and we'll experience victory and freedom. And as we go through this process and learn to love others, friends, you become a witness to the world that God is God. You become a witness to the world that God is the I am. And that is our primary calling as a church. Galatians 5, verse 1, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. You've been set free. Now, live free. Verse 13, you've been called to live in freedom. My brothers and sisters, but don't use your freedom to satisfy your sinful nature. Instead, use your freedom to serve each other in love. The whole law can be summed up in one command, love your neighbor as yourself. It's why we do love the 50 week. It's why we, we choose to love our neighbors, to lay down our lives for those around us. It's how we become a living witness. We, we enter into our own journey of freedom in the struggles of this life, knowing that we're covered and saved by grace as we journey through these broken areas. And then we learn to love each other as Christ has loved us. And that's how we do church. And we gather weekly and we lift up the name of Jesus and we're reminded of these things again. And friends, the biggest thing that you can do is exactly what God told the Israelites to do. He said, tell the story. Tell your children how I set you free. Tell the story of how I brought you out of Egypt. Friends, you have to tell your Exodus stories. You have to talk about the ways that God is setting you free, the journey that God has you on, the way that God is delivering you. Not that you're fully there, but that you're in process and on the way. The reason that we celebrate communion 
The reason we eat communion every week together is because we're not celebrating exactly what happened to the Israelites in Egypt. Now we're celebrating the greater Passover, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now we're remembering and celebrating the death of Jesus Christ on the cross who sets us free from sin and death. And on Passover, on the actual day in history, when all the Israelites gathered in Jerusalem to sacrifice the lambs and to worship God at that very moment, do you know who was crucified on the cross? As the city streets of Jerusalem were filled with the bleeding of dying lambs, there was a Jewish carpenter on a cross by the name of Jesus of Nazareth, God in the flesh, the I am, dying for us to be our final Passover lamb. So no other sacrifices are needed. The grace of God is ours, and now we can walk in the freedom that he purchased for us. We can live in the new life that he bought for us because he rose from the dead. So friends, right now, we remember what Christ did, and we celebrate communion together. Lord, I thank you for the cross. Lord, we thank you for what you've done for us. And right now, Jesus, in your name, we pray that we would live lives of worship to you. We pray that we would live lives of worship to you as we remember what you've done for us on the cross. Thank you for listening to the Hills Church Sermon Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, and if you haven't already, give us a rating so we know how this has impacted your journey with God. To learn more about us, visit our website at hills.church. We'll see you next time.